For BYU-Idaho Radio, I'm Ashley Chilcutt. Joining me today over Zoom is Sharon McMahon, Instagram influencer and former government and law teacher. You've probably seen Sharon on her Instagram page, Sharon Says So, where she has amassed nearly 1 million followers. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sharon. So happy to be here. Oh my gosh, I must say you have such a pretty voice. I've been listening to your podcasts all morning. And you're just so well-spoken, so I'm a little nervous, but I'm really happy to be interviewing you today. Mm. Now, the main topic that I wanted to focus on with you was about teachers having to pay for things out of pocket. But before we get into that, tell me a little bit about yourself and what made you want to start Sharon Says So on Instagram. Mm. Well, I when a as you mentioned, a teacher for a very long time. And during 2020, um, I noticed that a lot of Americans were having difficulty understanding or differentiating sometimes fact from fiction. And there just wasn't an easy place for people to go to get answers to things like, how does the electoral college work? What will happen if a third party candidate wants to run? Things of that nature that were not trying to promote a certain partisan point of view, but that we're talking about some of the very, very real issues that Americans need to know about and are concerned about. So I started making some very short little explainer videos that were just like, listen, here's what happens if we can't figure out who uh, won the electoral college, if they get a tie, here's what happens if there's a tie, things along those lines. And uh, they proved popular. They started taking off in popularity. I started getting asked to do radio and TV appearances regularly. And things, as they say, went down in history. Right. And did you ever imagine this for yourself? I'm assuming when you started, you weren't thinking, this is going to blow up. No, no, absolutely not. I... uh, had a little lull in my normal career. I had uh, left the classroom when I returned back to my home state of Minnesota and was running a business and had it sort of a pause on my business in part because of COVID. Um, we all remember what 2020 was like. And so I fully anticipated that this was just going to um, get us over the hump and move us into 2021 and that 2021 would be full of brighter days and I would return to my previous business. And I did not have any concept that they were going to be as popular as they were. No. Right. And on your Instagram page, there's a lot of content already that you've posted, but I was researching a little bit about um, who is Sharon Sesso, right? (laughs) Exactly. And you have some videos where you're basically going through hundreds of pages worth of legislation or bills so that you can simply explain that to the typical learners, such as myself, students, um, whether that be, you know, a mom at home or a college student or a high school student, anything like that. You do a lot of heavy lifting for the American people in order to understand what we would love to know. How is that experience? I can't imagine that it's easy to want to go through that many pages because I'm sure that the writing is not like reading a Harry Potter book. So... (laughs) Yeah, it's not a riveting page-turning novel. That is absolutely for sure. You know, I have, I think, a weirdly high tolerance for boredom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I was in college, I worked as a copy editor at a publishing company. And, you know, like... 
fixing people's grammatical errors and right. things along those lines. And a couple of the clients that this publishing company had did a lot of publishing, uh, but they were mostly documents that were designed for, you know, in-house uh, reproduction, where they might have 5,000 employees and these documents would need to be put into booklet form and then distributed throughout the organization, right? And they were about things like railroad regulations oh. and, and how synthetic oil is manufactured, right? things that are very boring. Um, and so I would do that for many, many hours a day, and it just became a skill that I honed. So then, of course, when I went to college and really began studying constitutional law and learning in depth the legal language, the vocabulary that is used in the legislative process, um, that is often a barrier to a lot of ordinary Americans. It's not fun reading, and it is purposely written in legal language because that is what laws are. Right. The right? jargon is kind of dense. Yes, yes. And so to me, it's it's a little bit second nature to read these kinds of things, uh, even though it's certainly not the most riveting. It's, it's second nature for me to do it. Well, I'm sure we're very grateful for your efforts behind the scenes in bringing those simple kind of reiterations of important government and political topics to the table on your Instagram. In mid-July, so this year, mid-July, you recently asked your followers to donate basically to the Teachers Grant Fundraiser. And within a matter of a weekend, you raised over a million dollars for teachers around the nation that is astounding. That's like blows my mind. I can't even fathom that much money, let alone having the support of so many people to amass that in a weekend. You posted updates about the amount that was running in on your Instagram. How did it feel when you saw those numbers rolling in and then eventually you met the goal that you'd set? Mm. Well, last year, we had a similar teacher grant program and we raised over $560,000. And so, you know, I thought we would do something similar again this year. I thought maybe we would do a little bit better than that. But I had this sort of um, goal in mind where I was like, wouldn't it be really incredible if we could raise a million dollars? And I felt a little weird just putting it out there being like, I want to raise a million dollars. It seemed so audacious. We've we've raised money for many amazing causes in the past. We've raised over $6 million in the last year and a half, um, but never a million dollars at a time. Right. And yeah, it just seemed very, very um, almost too gutsy of me to say it. You know, like, do I say it because... I've found that most people are not actually afraid of failing. They're afraid of having other people watch them fail. I think that's and, true. Yeah. So to put that out there meant that I was, I was putting myself in a position of other people watching me fail if it did not work out as intended. But I figured that, um, you know, no guts, no glory. If I only raised $900,000, that was still going to be better than we had done last year. What I had did not in any stretch of the imagination count on is raising over $1.2 million in a single weekend. Right. I thought it would take us weeks, weeks to do it. Right. That's probably part of the miracle of it. But I think that people 
related to the need for teachers to be able to afford supplies for their students because these are people who will become our future generations, adults running for elections and and running businesses and that kind of thing. And so I think caring for the children is really important. What are the main hurdles for teachers in affording fun learning spaces for their students? Mm. Most people know that teachers are not, you know, it's not the best paid profession. Most teachers are very underpaid for the amount of education that they have relative to other professions that require similar amounts of education. So everybody knows that. That's not a mystery. Right. Um, what is what is interesting, though, is that so many students come to school without what they need. They do not have the supplies that they need and that schools rarely pay for them. And so if a student arrives in a teacher's class and they don't have a notebook or pencil or crayons or glue, there's almost no teacher that is going to be like, well, just sit there and do nothing then. No, the teacher needs to teach that child. They need to include them in the classroom activities. And so what that means is that teachers are the ones who end up paying for all of these things. And so when you are factoring in this idea that teachers are already underpaid, um, their workloads are already increasing dramatically because of the mass exodus from the teaching profession, um, families are struggling. Some families legitimately don't have the money to supply their child with the resources they need to be successful in school. I don't mean to say that or imply that parents who don't send their children to school with the needed supplies are always malicious. Sometimes families are refugee families or they lost a job and they truly don't have an extra $30. So it ends up falling on the teacher's shoulders. And the the numbers show that the average teacher spends over $700 a year, their own money, um, supplying students in their classroom with what they need. I know that the money that you raised in the teacher's grant fundraiser was sent out to thousands of teachers across the United States. It might have even expanded a little bit to other countries too. In the amount of $500 grants, have you been able to talk to some of those teachers who received the grants and what was their reaction? Mm. Yeah, we sent $500 grants to over 2,500 teachers and overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly we we hear back from teachers how much this eased their burden how much lighter it made them feel heading into the school year how um how much they felt like somebody actually cared about them and we can't we cannot care about children without caring for teachers we have to care about both we cannot say we care about kids, we care about the well-being of kids without also caring for the people who teach them. And so teachers need to be cared for and to feel supported in the same way that children need to be cared for and supported and parents need to be cared for and supported. And so overwhelmingly, um, we hear words like, I, I started crying when I read this. I jumped up and down in the gas station parking lot. Um, this is such a relief. Relief is a word that we hear over and over again. And just an overwhelming amount of gratitude that people out there that they don't even know cared enough to give their hard-earned money to 
lend them a hand. You just said something that was actually a part of a post on your Instagram. It says, you can't care about children and not care about teachers. There is no other group of teachers waiting in the wings. My sister's actually works, she works as a teacher at a pre-K daycare in Tennessee. And I was kind of talking to her a little bit about the challenges of teaching. And she was really going, describing her job. And there seemed to be so many aspects like emotional support and giving supplies and helping them to learn discipline and leadership and teamwork. And it just seemed like the scope was far more than I think we realize as maybe people not in the profession. And so how can we do better at supporting our teachers, aside from, of course, like donating to good causes like this one? Hmm. That's a wonderful question. Um, And I think it's a question really all Americans should ask themselves, regardless of whether they have children in school, regardless of whether or not they um, know somebody that's a teacher. All Americans should ask themselves, how can we better support teachers and schools? Because there is no shortage of evidence that children who receive a high quality education commit fewer acts of crime. They commit fewer acts of violence. They go on to be more productive members of society. It's better for our economic system. They don't end up in prison nearly as often. The vast majority of people who end up in prison have not finished high school. So if we care about our society at large, we care about our local communities, that has to start by caring about teachers and children. And so it's a wonderful question to ask ourselves, what can we do to support teachers? That starts, of course, by voting for political candidates who control things like school budgets that support schools and teachers. They don't just give them lip service, they actually support schools and teachers. So voting is one part of it. Another more more immediate, more tangible way that Let's say a parent does have a child in school or you have a neighbor who is a teacher. One thing that you can do is, of course, if you're able to provide your child with the supplies they need. But even if you don't have a child in school, giving a teacher, you know, a $20 Target gift card or buying six extra boxes of tissues, which will cost you, you know, $10 or $12 uh, and giving them to a teacher, dropping them off in the front office of a school, just thinking in terms of what are some of the practical needs the school might have that I could in some small way impact. Nobody's asking you as an individual to fix every single one of the ills of American education. No one person can fix it all, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to do something. Just because we can't do everything doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. And if you are not somebody who has a lot of financial resources to buy things, as I mentioned, voting is important, but you can also support teachers in other ways. If you have a child in school, send an email to your child's principal saying how much your child enjoys that teacher's classroom. I guarantee you that that message will get back to the teacher. You could even blind carbon copy on them, them on that and that would make their week. I promise you that would be printed out and probably put on the bulletin board or put in a drawer in their desk where they could see it. Teachers need encouragement, just like all humans do. They need encouragement to do their job the best they can. 
they're um, people just like we are and in charge of all the little minis. <laughs> I remember in grade school getting lists from my teachers with just like requests of supplies that they needed. Usually it was like Germex and tissues and crayons and pencils and that kind of thing. Are these types of supplies what teachers are struggling to pay for independently, like out of pocket? Or does this issue extend to other resources too that they're lacking? Mm, It's all of those things. One of the things that I consistently hear over and over and over from teachers is how much money they spend on food, mm. food for their classrooms. And I'm ta- not talking about buying buying children Chipotle. I'm saying having granola bars in their classrooms, having Rice Krispie treats. So child with allergies who, you know, when another person is having a birthday, that child doesn't get left out. Um, making sure that kids don't feel so hungry that it disrupts the classroom learning environment right kids often don't self-regulate nearly as much as adults do and we've all had those times where we felt hangry or like when is this meeting slash class slash undesirable activity over because i'm really hungry um and we're learning is a lot of work and so if we want the best out of kids they have to eat And so I hear from a lot of teachers that they spend tons of money on food. But here's another example of something that I don't know that the public is very well informed about, which is that a veteran teacher will often spend thousands of dollars over the years amassing things like classroom libraries, resources, flexible seating in their classrooms, you know, um, science experiments, supplies, things along those natures, right? Right. They, over the course of say 10 years, if they're spending 500 to $1,000 a year, that is amassing five to $10,000 worth of supplies. So that then becomes very challenging if a teacher is ever reassigned to teach a different grade level. Mm. Sometimes this happens to teachers immediately before school begins. And if you have amassed all kinds of materials for teaching first grade or seventh grade, and suddenly you have to teach fifth grade or 12th grade, the materials that you have, that you have spent your own money on over the years are no longer applicable. Your first grade materials don't work for fifth graders. It's not the same science curriculum. It's not the same reading curriculum. Uh, Fifth graders can read chapter books, generally speaking. And so often then teachers have to start over, start over with accumulating those kinds of rich materials that the members of the public, parents, students say, oh, they were a fantastic teacher. They had so many books from the kids to choose from. They had so many great uh, hands-on science experiments, all of the things that we associate with a really rich classroom. And I don't mean monetarily rich, I mean learning experience rich. Right. Uh, those can just be wiped out with a few keystrokes by moving somebody to a grade where those those no longer apply. That's definitely an angle to this that I hadn't thought of. It's more or less, I guess, a nuanced issue that I don't think most people have thought of or mm-hmm. really are acquainted with unless they're in the profession. Just to play devil's advocate... Why isn't a room that's just, you know, a regular classroom, there's one desk for every student, there's maybe a cup of pencils and a desk for the teacher and a whiteboard and a chalkboard and maybe some markers, chalk. Why isn't that enough for facilitating a learning environment? Mm. 
Well, it's not to say that students can't learn in that environment. They can, and some do. But we do know uh, that a warm environment, an environment in which children want to be, an environment in which they feel safe and secure, doesn't look and feel like a prison. That's really sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. A kid, we could probably teach a second grader to learn in prison, but do we really want to? Is that the kind of environment that we want children to learn in? Is that what we want to teach them learning is? Right. So many of our associations with school are established when we're young. We decide at a young age subconsciously whether school is a place we like. School is a place we want to be. Learning is something we want to do. Reading is something we enjoy. We learn those things, establish those beliefs subconsciously very early on in our lives. And the environment that you that you learn in absolutely does impact that, just as the environment you live in does. Right. You know, yeah. Could we all just live in a concrete room with a window and a sleeping bag? We could. Yeah. But but do we want to? Is that uh, is that are those the conditions under which we are the best people we can be? Most people would say no. Interestingly, my sister who teaches in Tennessee also expressed that making her classroom a place she wanted to be was important for her motivation to go to work and have a good attitude and to put her best forward for her kids every day. And I hadn't thought of it as something for the teachers as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see people in all sorts of work environments um, customizing their work environments to feel more comfortable to them. And that's not always possible if you drive an ambulance or, you know, you work in a police department. I, I understand that it's not always possible to the extent that you might like to. But humans are by nature creative creatures. We enjoy making things and enjoy being in certain environments. It produces certain certain neurotransmitters in our brain when we develop these positive associations with different places. And I don't think there's any harm whatsoever in making your classroom a place you also want to be. One of the things that you've pointed out on your social media is that there's a high percentage of teachers who report that they were going to leave the profession, especially sooner than they planned, Is this percentage continuing to grow? And what are the main reasons why they're leaving? Mm. The exodus of teachers from the classroom is a crisis. And I am not somebody who is overly prone to hyperbole. I'm not somebody who um, says the sky is falling over every little thing. I'm generally a pretty level-headed person who can see the forest for the trees. So when I say that something is a crisis, I sincerely mean that. That is not me just over-inflating the situation. So not only have we for a number of years been not training an adequate number of teachers to replace people who are retiring and leaving. We're already, we were already in a position of under training teachers, meaning not training enough teachers to, to fill the requirements of schools. And of course the United States population continues to grow. So it's not like we have a static number of teachers that we are going to need over time. Not only are we under training them over the last Uh, approximately two to three years, we have created 
an extraordinary set of circumstances for teachers that have created um, a very alarming amount of stress and mental health issues associated with working in the classroom. A lot of that comes from feeling unsupported. And you can tie some of that directly to how challenging circumstances have been surrounding COVID um, and that they were teachers felt like they were caught in the middle of this conflict between some people who thought schools should be open um, at no matter the COVID conditions, some people who felt like schools should be closed and we should have distance learning only, um, health conditions that, you know, health mitigation uh, conditions that were present in schools, people who were mad about those. And so teachers were put in this sort of the eye of this hurricane of public beliefs and sentiments surrounding the pandemic. Um, and so that had made, first of all, that made teaching exponentially more difficult it's already a difficult job and it made teaching exponentially more difficult. Some some teachers were just told with very little notice, you now teach online right? without any training on how to work any of the systems, sometimes without a system. Um, we all know that six-year-olds don't learn best by sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day. Everyone knows that, nobody disagrees with that, but in some cases that was the only option. And so to, you know, try to figure out a way to engage students remotely, the conditions under which teachers have been working um, is, has been very, very challenging. And then when you add in public sentiment, um, some politicians that fundraise on the backs of criticizing teachers, that creates uh, an environment that makes it difficult to want to continue working in. Most teachers, as according to Yale research, the most common emotions teachers felt in 2021 were sadness and anxiety. Yeah, that's not that's, good. Yeah, that's not what's best for our children. Mm -mm. It's not what's best for our children to be taught by people who overwhelmingly feel sadness and anxiety. That's not what's best for the teachers, and it's not what's best for our communities as a whole. And so if we want different outcomes, we have to do something different. We cannot continue on this trajectory that we're on. I'm curious to know if the environment surrounding teaching, especially during COVID, discouraged people who are pursuing education, going through school at a college level from continuing their degree. I love how you pointed out how much social pressure there was and how much complexity surrounded the online teaching scenario, especially, and how those teachers had to adapt so quickly with such little resource. I do know that some school districts don't allow their teachers to seek funds from third-party sources through things like crowdfunding, etc. Why is this? Mm. That is absolutely true. We've heard from a variety of teachers that their district, in fact, this is true of the district my children attend, their district has a policy that forbids teachers from posting things like Amazon wish lists, or, you know, here's a link to the books that I'm hoping to buy for my classroom. 
And the the reasons that might be true are varied, but a lot of it has to do with wanting to control public perception. They don't want the public to feel like we under-resource our teachers. Mm. We don't want the public to feel like um, we're begging for their their money and markers and things along those lines. So it is has a lot to do with the appearance of how it looks when people are saying, I don't have what I need to teach this class. Can you imagine getting hired to work in an insurance office, for example, and you show up on the first day and your boss says, I want you to prepare this report for a potential client, um, put it in a three ring binder, uh, hole punch it, uh, put the little paper with the presentation paper in it, get them some folders, you know, like make this nice presentation. I'm gonna give this to my potential client so they'll buy insurance from me. And you say, okay, well, where, how do I do that? Like what, where are the things that I need? And they say to you, um, you should go to Staples and buy everything that you need with your own money. And you're not going to get paid back for it. And that's exactly what schools, school districts are asking teachers to do. If you are not even supplying your employees with the tools that they need to do their job. When I give you the example of the insurance office, that seems absurd. Of course the insurance office should have binders and staplers and hole punches. That seems absurd, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what is happening in thousands of American classrooms every day that they don't even have the basic tools that they need to do the jobs that they've been hired to do. It's no secret that teachers obviously need these types of supplies, but it doesn't seem like there's state budget enough allocated towards teachers even equally across the board. Why is that? In many states, the way schools are funded is by citywide property taxes. Some states uh, vary this slightly. Some states work on a county system, but most states work on a city property tax budget. And so when you have schools that exist in neighborhoods that are very wealthy, those wealthy neighborhoods have high property values. And so consequently, the property taxes are sometimes enough to fund a nice school with a nice playground and a supply closet at the front office, you know, things of that nature. Um, But very often, that in many middle-class neighborhoods or lower-income neighborhoods, the amount that is brought in in property taxes does not allow for supply budgets that are adequate for a classroom of students for an entire year. Some schools have, you know, a small supply budget, or some schools might order large amounts of copy paper for the copy machine. I'm not saying that no schools provide any resources whatsoever, but almost universally teachers feel very under-resourced. And I'm talking about tangible resources with which to do their job. I once taught in a school district in the Bay Area of California, which is a very, very wealthy portion of the United States. And we had to pay for photocopies out of our paychecks. There was a person in the main office whose job it was to make photocopies. Let's say you want to photocopy a test. And if you have, you're allowed a certain budget of copies, which was $10 per month. And if you went over the $10 per month copy budget, because the person making the copies 
kept track, it came directly out of your paycheck. Um, additionally, that same school, which again was a very middle-class school, had no textbooks because the textbooks had been destroyed in a water main break, which flooded the supply closet. And there was no money in the district budget to buy new textbooks. Textbooks are very expensive, very expensive. To buy new textbooks for a school can be six figures. So we had no textbooks and we had to pay for photocopies to make materials for our children to learn from. So that's just one example of the types of things that are happening. I'll give you one other example, which uh, was one of the recipients of um, our teacher grant, who was a, a teacher in Utah who um, was, in the, was in the National Guard and wrote to us and said, I just got back from my guard training and received an email from our principal that they were going to try to keep our classes under 40 students which by the way is an absurd number of students to have in a classroom any teacher outside of say like a college lecture hall will tell you that 40 students is absolutely absurd what's um, typically manageable around 20 25 depends on the age you know like if you are a choir teacher or an orchestra teacher of course you need more students to make an orchestra but if you were teach younger students, you want to have smaller classes. But you know, most people would say a high school class of around twenty five or thirty students that's manageable. Not necessarily ideal, but thirty ish is manageable for a high school class. Forty is absurd. So this person then said, "I just got my class list, and I have forty two students in one of my classes, and I only have thirty five desks." So that teacher in Utah did not have a place for seven students to sit. And they were going to take the teacher grant that we had given them to purchase places for children to sit in their class. Um, that's That literally just happened last week. That That's not some absurd thing that happened long ago. This is currently what the state of American education is in many places. I think that's surprising, especially since general opinion or understanding is that desks are provided for each student in public schools. So you would hope so. Yes, you, you would. would. Hope so right, right. That that seems like a pretty basic thing. Desks are not cheap, and so this teacher was like, "I'm going to buy some bean bags, like bean bag chairs, which they could purchase enough of with the money that we had get what we had fundraised to give them." Um, yeah, you would think that like, okay, well, you're going to try to give me 42 students, you better give me 42 desks. Well, that was not the case. Wow. It sounds like teachers have to be really creative in these kind of roll with the punches scenarios as well. Idaho is actually consistently ranked in the bottom echelon for education spending per student. And our listening area is across southeastern Idaho. And Wages for teachers are typically 12% below the national average here, which basically translates to between $13 to $20 per hour starting out as a junior teacher. Is the reality of teachers being perceived as low income largely affected by having to reallocate those funds back into their own profession for their students? I mean, the fact that teachers spend... 700 to a thousand dollars of their own money every year despite being paid 
of approximately what a teenager at Chipotle would get paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not even an exaggeration. I personally know a 16-year-old at Chipotle that makes $17.50 an hour. Um, despite some teachers being paid that amount, um, they want the best for their children. They want the best for their students. And so they spend the money anyway. And then because they do, often the public perception is there's no problem because Mm. the teachers find a way to make it work. The public perception is there's no problem. But as I mentioned before, we've now reached a crisis point where the problem can no longer be ignored. Teachers are leaving the profession in alarming rates and the outcome is going to be very, very detrimental for children, their families, and our communities at large. Even if you listen to this and you're like, I don't care about teachers, even if that's your impression, you should care about your community. You should care about public safety. You should care about children growing up to be productive members of society because that absolutely directly impacts you. And so teachers leaving the profession en masse will affect you. Maybe not today, but it will. You often talk about politics on your social media and explain how people can make a difference, basically do what they can. Uh, One of your mantras seems to be that the weight of the world is not on your shoulders. You don't have to do it all by yourself. So I guess, would you recommend that people start at the local government level and kind of petition their representatives to put this issue on the radar? Mm. Education is absolutely a local issue. The vast majority of educational decisions about our community schools are decided locally. Some of it is at the state level. Almost none of it, very small amount of it, is at the federal level. So the best place to make an impact is in your community. The best place to make an impact actually then is the place where you have the greatest ability to make an impact, which is your local community. It can start by something as simple as attending a school board meeting or running for school board or being aware of the upcoming budget process and signing up to be on a a parent panel that helps look at where should we allocate our budgets. There are many, many ways for community members, they don't have to be parents, by the way, community members to be involved in their community schools at the very, very local level. And it starts with school boards. A while ago, earlier this year, actually, I had an opportunity to interview a gentleman who was organizing a group of youth to put together hygiene packs for Ukrainian refugees. And that obviously took funding. And some people would see that effort and think it's not going to make a big difference. It's just some hygiene, it's just some like shampoo and conditioner and maybe a comb and a washcloth and things of that nature. But when I was talking to him about what inspired him, he made an analogy and was like, If there was a forest on fire and all the animals were standing on the forest line just watching it burn, and then a hummingbird just starts to gather a little bit of water in its beak and then drop it over the fire, the animals might ask, what are you doing? And the hummingbird, all that it could say was, what I can. And I've remembered that image ever since just because I do often feel 
really small as far as the impact I can have in issues like this. But considering that maybe those animals at the woodline seeing the hummingbird do what it can, maybe inspired to also do what they can. And so I think when we all realize that when we start doing what we can, things start to happen. The world starts to move a little bit. And I think you're a great example of that, especially with how inspiring you've been to um, your followers, especially who you lovingly refer to as governors. By the way, Ashley, this is a great example of you doing what you can. You're working where you are with the resources available to you. In this case, a radio station, mm-hmm. right? This You're doing what you can. And maybe someday that's going to look different. You might not always work in radio. Maybe in 15 years, you will have kids in a public school and you, what your, your contribution will look different. This is you doing what you can. And I, I like to say, I love the analogy that you just gave about the hummingbird doing what they can. And I like to say, do for one person what you wish you could do for everybody. Wow. Do for one teacher what you wish you could do for all the teachers. Do for one child what you wish you could do for all. I actually got a little bit of goosebumps when you said that. I don't know why. It just it took some of the burden off, you know, of feeling like you can't make a difference. And I think that most people do want to do good. I they do. do. I agree. So and most people want to have safe communities and high quality schools and they want teachers to feel supported and they want children to grow up in a loving home. Most of us want good things for the world and they struggle sometimes to see with like, well, what can I do? I can't stop Russia from invading Ukraine. Right. That's beyond my control. Um, but what they could do with the resources available to them was help some refugees. They did for one person what they wish they could do for all Ukrainians. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your insights today, Sharon. I've really enjoyed talking to you about this teacher out-of-pocket issue, and I really appreciate your time today. Mm, It's truly a pleasure. Thank you. For BYU-Idaho Radio, I'm Ashley Chilcutt. This was an interview with Sharon McMahon, Instagram influencer and former government and law teacher. 